0: Uh, Genesis 12 is where we're going to be. So um, as you turn in there, I'd like to thank a couple of people in our church. Um, so over the last few months, some of you guys know this, over the last few months, uh, we had some, uh, needed some extra help as, as uh, uh, Amy Jacqueline had to take some time um, away for uh, her maternity leave. And so uh, we had a few people step in to uh, pick up some of the, the work that she does. Um, and it takes multiple people to do all of the work Amy does. Um, and so... Uh, we had uh, Kelly Hawk um, handling our kids ministry, uh, and Emily Alexander handling doing most of the other officey, run the churchy kind of stuff. So um, I just wanted to thank you guys, to, thank you very much for everything you guys did. Thank you, Emily, for um, serving and keeping this place up and running and keeping me focused. Um, and and Kelly as well. She's not here this morning, but she does uh, has done a great work. Uh, if you were here during Christmas time, getting the kids organized, we had the kids um, singing, and then she helped a lot with the Christmas party. It was uh, just a great blessing, and I'm just so thankful to have a church where uh, when we have needs, when we have opportunities, people are willing to step up and help and lead. So thank you both. Thank you very much, Emily. Um, All right, so uh, this morning we are going to begin a brand new sermon series, um, which is going to get tied into the bigger goal of the year. So we've been talking um, the last few weeks about Taking a next step. In 2020, what does it look like for you to take at least one, not just one, but at least one step in your faith, in growing, in proclaiming Christ, and becoming Christ-like, right? That's the the goal of our church as a whole, and we as individuals need to be pursuing this. So what does it look like in 2020 for you to go from here in your walk with Christ to one step up? And not just one, we don't want to stop, and one, we want to continuously be pursuing Christ, but what does it look like to take one? And so this year um, we're going to be as we study uh, on Sundays through sermons um, that's kind of the goal is how do we grow in proclaiming to be becoming more like Christ and proclaiming Christ and so our Sunday sermons are going to be geared toward this idea. And so to grow and becoming more like Christ and proclaiming him we got to know who he is. We got to know who God is and lucky for us God reveals himself to us in scripture. And more uh Importantly, God, for us in this setting, God reveals us to us himself in the way he's referred to, in his names that he chooses in the Bible. We've got to know who he is, so we're going to start a new series this morning called My Name Is, and we're going to be studying the names of God. God goes by many different names throughout the Bible, and he does that intentionally. Because back then, names meant a great deal. They often were used to signify a prophecy or a word from God. Names reveal things about the character in person, the character of a person. And so as we study the names of God, we're going to see God revealing his character to us. And my hope is that as we go forward, as we look at these different names of God, each new name is going to give you a new part, a new, a new element of God, maybe that you didn't think of before, maybe you never really considered before, but something, some aspect of God's character that you can now cling to and run to. And so this morning, we're going to start with the name El Shaddai. So we're going to talk about what that means and what that means for us. So I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. So uh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you even for the snow and the ice uh, and the cold. Um, we get to live in a place that sees all of the seasons, all of the, the life and death that cycle throughout the seasons. And um, it's just another reminder of you being in control of creation, of you being in control of all things that... Um, Even the way that our seasons change uh, has order to it. There's no chaos in there, but it has order and completeness and intentionality to it. It's another reminder to us of your control. God, as we open your word this morning, as we jump into this new series, as we go looking intentionally for your name and go intentionally looking for you to reveal yourself to us, Lord, I pray that you do what you promise, that if we knock, you're going to answer If we come looking, you will be found. And so, God, we are knocking, we are looking. We ask that you would show up, that you would reveal yourself to us as we study your word. Not only this morning, but throughout the week as we study your word, in community groups, on our own, and as we gather back here next Sunday. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to start this morning with the name El Shaddai. This name appears throughout the Old Testament, most often in the book of Job. Um, it shows up about 48 times throughout the Old Testament. Most of the time, it's just the word Shaddai, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, the full name El Shaddai is found about seven different times. This name means God Almighty. El Shaddai, God Almighty. So El is God singular for Elohim, which we will get into next week, Um, but El means God, so when you see see El, it means God. Shaddai is a little bit trickier, it's a little trickier of an understanding of what that name means. There's three basic connections to the word Shaddai uh, as we look at it throughout scripture. One is related to the word Shaddod, uh, which means to destroy, right? So he is almighty, he has the power to destroy The other word is sadhu, which means mountain. And what is bigger, what is more powerful, what is stronger than a mountain, right? In biblical times, what is more impressive, more powerful, more awe-inspiring than a mountain? And then the third uh, connection that we have to this word, the root of this word, comes from the word shad, which means breast. And Dr. Tony Evans um, wrote a book on the power of the names of God, which I'm going to be quoting from quite often for the next few weeks, because that book is already blowing my mind. Um, but he talks a lot about this connection. He talks about nourishment. When a woman nurses her child, she is providing what that child needs to live. She provides life to her child. And so we have the word shad. God is almighty. He is able to destroy. He is big and powerful. He is massive. He has the ability and power to provide what is needed to live. El Shaddai, God Almighty. In church circles, in theology books, and and the word for this is God is omnipotent. Or as I learned it, God is omnipotent. It means all-powerful, right? Omni, all-potent, powerful. God is all-powerful. God is almighty. Now some people might hear God is almighty. We talk about God being all-powerful, almighty. It might lead to ask the question, well, can God make a burrito so big that even he couldn't eat it? And questions like that miss the entire point of the conversation, right? Because they aren't trying to show, they aren't trying to really know God, but rather just keep us spinning our tires in the mud. That's that's not the kind of thing that we're going to wrestle with here in this series. It's a ridiculous premise, and there's, for two, there's a limit to what we can know and how much we can completely comprehend, right? There is always more of God to be known. We can't try to limit and contain who God is. Even as we talk about God Almighty, we can't quantify his almightiness because it's all of the mightiness. It's all of the power. He has all of it. And so to try and quantify that even in itself is limiting who God is. But that's not to say we can't know who God is, we can. It's the reason we have scripture, it's the reason we study it, it's the reason we are doing this series, because God is knowable, He is approachable, and the very fact that He reveals Himself to us means He wants us to know Him, He wants us to pursue Him. And the bigness, the awesomeness, the greatness of God means there is always more and more of God to be known. And I think my goal for us this morning in starting with the, word, with the name El Shaddai is that if we dwell on it and accept what God is revealing to us about himself, it should inspire, comfort, and encourage us. We'll come back to those words later. Inspire, comfort, and encourage. So let's jump in to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, we see uh, in Genesis 12, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the first time Abram shows up. We see at the end of chapter 11, uh, we find out Abram's dad's name is Terah, and he is married to a woman named Sarai, and she is barren. That's a key to what we're going to look at here this morning. God tells Abram, we know nothing about his relationship with God. We know nothing about how God has revealed himself to Abram. But God speaks to Abram and he says, Abram, take a walk. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your extended family. I want you to leave everything you know and take a walk. And it's not just take a walk, but it's take a walk until I tell you to stop. And where I tell you, that place will be yours. And on top of that, Abram, you will be a great nation. Your name will be so great that you will be a blessing to others. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. This is the first of the Abrahamic covenant. We see a promise of land. We see a promise of family, a promise of blessing. This is God making a covenant. We'll talk more about covenant in a little bit. God making a covenant with saying, I will give you land, I will give you I will give you, I will make you a blessing and your blessing will be a blessing to others. Abram didn't do anything to earn this or deserve this. God chose Abram and Abram was faithful to step when God told him to take a walk. He gathers up his family and he takes a walk. It says that he is 75 years old when he leaves and God leads him to the land of Canaan And God tells Abram, even though the Canaanites already live here, he says, Abram, this is going to be the place I'm going to give you and your descendants. This is the place I have chosen for you. Amen. (laughs) Skip over to chapter 15, Genesis. God has made this promise to Abram. Abram steps out on that promise, walks, ends up in Canaan. And we see, and we're going to pick it up in Genesis 15, uh, verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God makes this promise when Abram is 75 years old. He says, I'm going to give you land, descendants, you're going to be a blessing. So he shows up, he's got the land. He said, I'm going to make you a nation. Well, to be a nation, you need people, and there's no heir. Abram's 75 years old. Some time has passed. Some years have passed, and there's still no children. Remember, we found out Sarah is barren. It's been some time, years, since God made this original promise to Abram, and Abram cries out to God, worrying that the heir that he was promised is going to be Eleazar. Eliezer who is the head of Abram's house, basically a servant in his house. It was common in those days. If you didn't have your own heir, if you didn't have a son to pass on, then whoever was the head of your house, your most senior servant, would be kind of take over and would take the inheritance. Abram begins to doubt God. He begins to doubt God because he had to wait. He began to doubt God because God wasn't moving in the way and timeline that, God, that Abram wanted him to. It didn't make sense to Abram, and so he got frustrated. Abram began to look at the situation and the promise of God with human expectation and human reasoning. The problem is that God is above and beyond our expectation and our reasoning. And so he cries out, God, is this what you meant when you said I was going to have an heir? You promised descendants. You promised a nation. Did you mean Eliezer? Did you mean this guy? And God tells him very quickly, No. No, you're going to have a son. And not only are you going to have a son, Abram, but I want you to go outside, look at the stars in the sky. Apparently there are stars in the sky, I've been told. I grew up in Chicago. I don't. He so said, look at the stars in the sky and try and count them, and that's how many descendants you're going to have. It didn't make sense to Abram. It wasn't logical. It didn't even seem possible. But this is the promise God made, and Abram believed. Now, Abram doubted before he believed. He doubted, but he brought those doubts to God. And God affirmed Abram. He secured Abram. It's not a sin to have doubts. It's not a sin to have questions. But take those doubts, take those worries, take those questions, and bring them to God. And once God assures you of them, stand firm in his assurance. Abram brought the doubts. He brought the questions to God. He heard the assurance from God, but then he didn't stand firm. Quite firm. Jump down to chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The years are ticking away. The original promise, Abram's 75. He's in Canaan for a while now. It's 10 years. He's around 85, 86, somewhere in that range. Still no children are being born. This great nation is still not happening. Sarai knows the promise. She knows also, though, that she is barren. And so she takes it upon herself to fulfill the promise of God made to Abram. Sarai even blames God for the situation. In verse 2, she says, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's his fault. Even though he made this promise and he gave this guarantee, it's his fault we don't have kids. And so somehow that's helping her rationalize her decisions. And so she says, I'm going to handle this. And she does that through her servant, Hagar. She tells Abram, go sleep with Hagar. She will conceive a son. That son will technically belong to Sarai because Hagar belongs to Sarai. So technically, the son will belong to Sarai. And so Abram sleeps with Hagar. She conceives. And she's going to give birth to a son named Ishmael. Now, we say it all the time. Yes, there's polygamy in the Bible. It happens in the Bible. It never ends well. This is not the Bible condoning sex outside of marriage. This is not the Bible condoning polygamy. It never, ever, ever ends well. This ends up being disastrous for Hagar, for Ishmael, and for generations upon generations of people who are technically family, who are technically cousins, technically brothers and sisters. They will grow up to hate and fight and war against each other even to this day because of the decision to go against God's promise. And before we go on, and I know we're talking about El Shaddai this morning, but before we go on, because we are talking about names of God, I want you to skip down to verse 13. It says that Sarai, we left in verse 6, Sarai treats Hagar harshly, Hagar flees. Hagar leaves and an angel shows up to her. Hagar leaves Sarai, an angel shows up, tells Hagar, you need to go back to your mistress. You need to go back to the family that, was, that you were a servant of. Go back because you're going to need help in this. You are a pregnant slave girl in the middle of nowhere. This doesn't end well for you if you don't go back, and go back and live with them. The angel tells her, you're going to give birth to a son named Ishmael, and not only him, but your offspring will be numbered so greatly they will not be able to be numbered. Now look at verse 13. Hagar says, So she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. You are a God of seeing. El Roy, the God who sees. Hagar is mistreated, abused, abused. She is a servant, a slave. She is cast aside for doing the very thing her master commanded her to do. She is alone and vulnerable and helpless and hopeless. For the person who has ever wondered, does God care about me? Does he care about what I'm dealing with? Does he even see what I'm dealing with? Is he even paying attention? God sees you. God knows you. He knows when you rise up. He knows when you sit down. He knows the very hairs on your head. He knows the desires of your heart. When Sarai and Abram Abram talk about Hagar in those opening verses, it's her, it's the servant, it's the servant girl. When God shows up and meets Hagar in her distress, the first word out of his mouth is, Hagar, you are a person, you have an identity with God. He calls her by name. The God who sees is paying attention. He is not ignoring. He is not blind to the injustice, the pain, the sadness, the brokenness, the hurt, and the hardships that you have endured or are enduring or are about to endure. And Hagar is comforted by his presence. Her response to him is, truly, I have seen him who looks after me who is paying attention, and is intimately involved. It's not just that God sees. He does. He is El Roy, the God who sees, but he is also El Shaddai, God Almighty. He has the power to move and protect and to provide. Because it's great that God sees. It's great that God is paying attention. And within that, His character shows us he is love and mercy and justice and kindness. He has a heart and a desire for the oppressed. But that's why we need him also to be El Shaddai. Because it's great that he has mercy. It's great that he has justice. It's great that he has love and compassion. But we need a God who has the power to act upon those things in a way that changes the very existence that we live in and we do. The God who not only sees the hurt has the power and ability to do something about it. God saw sin enter the world. He saw the devastation and the brokenness that sin brought into our relationships. God saw what sin did to separate us from himself, and he sent his Son, God in the flesh, to enter humanity. And the only one who has the power to defeat sin and death and Satan himself is God Almighty, El Shaddai. He did what only he could do. He saved us and freed us and delivered us and rescued us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that anyone who would put their faith in Christ, in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, not only finds that forgiveness, but new life and grace and mercy. Some of you might hear this and hear about how God is all-powerful and God sees and God's paying attention and say, okay, well, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he do something about the pain in my life? Why doesn't he do something about the pain in this world? Well, that brings us right back to Abram and Sarah's shoes, doesn't it? About doubting and worrying and not trusting in the timing and provision of God. Go to Chapter 17. Abraham is 99 years old. This is roughly 25, 26 years after the original promise in chapter 12. When the original promise of an heir was given, 25 years of waiting. 25 years of waiting for God to move. And in the midst of that waiting, getting frustrated, doubting, getting antsy and trying to work on God's behalf for him. Abram and Sarah probably thought to themselves, well, maybe God gave up on us. Maybe after that whole Hagar thing, maybe he bailed. Maybe he changed his mind. Maybe he decided to quit. Maybe I sinned too big. You ever thought that? Maybe this time I went too far. I walked too far away from God this time. Maybe I've messed up one too many times and God has finally just washed his hands of me and said, no, that's enough. It is in the doubt It is in the worry. It is in the fear. It is in this setting that God reveals himself to Abram very clearly. Abram, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I am the God powerful enough to provide the nourishment and life that you need. And he promises this in the context of a covenant. A contract, but a covenant. These things are different. Contract says, I'm going to do this if you do that. I will pay you money if you will provide me heat, electricity, data for my phone. That's a contract. If one side doesn't honor the contract, it gets broken. It's a if-then kind of thing. Covenant says, I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. We see covenant played out in wedding ceremonies and marriages. When you make your vows, it is, I vow to honor and cherish and love for better or for worse, sickness and health, regardless of what the other person says. It's, I'm going to do this. This is what I am vowing to do for you. And then the other person makes their vows. And it's not, I'm going to love you when you're most lovable. I'm going to respect you when you're most respectable. It's just, I'm going to do this. It would be a real bummer if wedding ceremonies were contracts and not covenant ceremonies. God is all about covenant. He says, I promise to do this for you, Abram. Regardless of what you do, regardless of what your descendants do, and we watch throughout the Old Testament, over thousands of years, the descendants of Abraham walk away from God over and over and over again, and God continuously calls them back to himself. He says, this covenant is for you and your descendants. You will be a father of a multitude of nations. And God goes so far and he changes his name. Abram means exalted father. His new name, Abraham, means father of a multitude because God wanted Abraham to remember. Every time he introduced himself, every time someone said his name, every time one of his descendants referenced their dad, their granddad, their great-great-great-granddad, it would declare God's power. It would declare God's covenant that he made with Abraham the father of a multitude. And only God could do that because he is El Shaddai. Within a year of these verses, within a year of him declaring himself as God Almighty, Isaac is born to his 100-year-old dad, Abraham, and his 90-year-old mom, Sarah, who also got a name changed from Sarai to Sarah, which means princess. This is El Shaddai at work, right here. He makes a promise, and even when that promise seems too big, too grand, too ridiculous, he has the power and ability to carry that promise to its completion because he is God Almighty. See, El Shaddai means that he is not just the God of the unlikely or the God of the improbable. He is the God of the impossible. It is in the impossible where El Shaddai has the room to say, stand back and watch what I'm going to do. Watch what I'm going to do for your good and my glory. When things seem helpless and hopeless, when it feels like everything is on you, but you don't have the power or ability or goodness to be able to handle all of this, that's when El Shaddai shows up and reminds you who is truly in control, who truly has all power. God's in control. He's got this. I've said this often, but there's a quote up in my wall in my, in my office from Pastor Matt Chan that says, God is awesome. He doesn't need you to be awesome. He wants you to be obedient. He doesn't need you to figure it all out on your own. He doesn't need you to go rogue and try and handle things on your own. Even if your motives are good and pure, what do you possibly think you're going to do to add to the situation that El Shaddai can't? If he is who he says he is, then we can trust We can rest, we can believe and live like we believe that God is almighty. And that's why it matters for us. I said at the beginning, it matters for us because it inspires, it comforts, and it encourages. The fact that God is El Shaddai should inspire us towards reverence a right understanding of who we are in relation to who God is, an appropriately placed fear and awe of his power and control over all existence. Yes, God is love and gentle and kind and just and true, but he is also the almighty creator of all existence, the ultimate authority by which all things are held together and all things serve his glory. The power and authority of God should cause a little bit of fear within us, a little bit of a trepidation. It's kind of when, even when you're not doing anything bad and you're driving down the street and a police officer starts driving behind you, all of a sudden you're at 10 and 2 and you're at the speed limit. You're not even doing anything wrong, but there's that little bit kind of it bubbles up in you. God is the ultimate power. He is majesty. He is holiness. He is goodness. He is grace. He is Amazing. All of that should now and will forever cause in us an awe inspiring reverence toward who He is. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is a right understanding of who we are in relation to who God is. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, In God, you come up against something which is very which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is ultimately above you. Remember, we said the word Shaddai has a relation, its root has a relation to the word for destruction. God is power. He is powerful, and with that power, he has the power to do what he wants. He will not be stopped. Reverence is a combination of admiration and fear and awe and dread and wonder and terror. The fact that God is El Shaddai should inspire in us reverence for who he is, who he has revealed himself to us as but it should also comfort us. It should comfort us in our hardships. Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. As we encounter and endure the hardships and the evil and the darkness of this world, the hardships and evil and darkness of our own hearts, We know that we have a God who is in control of all life that we can run to, that we can hide in, that we can take refuge in. I hate it when my son is scared or hurt by something. But man, I love it when he runs into my arms and he's no longer scared or hurt because he feels safe with me. Your God is a God who has eternally been a father, who enjoys caring for and protecting his children. Psalm 32:7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Psalm 143 9, deliver me from my enemies, O Lord, I have fled to you for refuge. When we take our refuge, when we hide in Him, when we trust in God's protection for us and over us, we are trusting in the Almighty power of El Shaddai. He is Almighty greater than anything, greater than everything, greater than our sin, greater than our doubts, greater than our shame, greater than our guilt, greater than our past, greater than our present, greater than our future. It means that no matter what sins are in your past or are in your present or are coming around the corner, there's nothing the cross can't cover. There is nothing that can't be forgiven. You can't outsin God's grace. So let that comfort you. Let that wash over you and let that send you running toward him. Let that send you running toward him to confess and repent and keep pursuing him. Because when you hold on to those things, when you hold on to that guilt and shame, when you hold on and think, man, I've sinned too big. There's no way God can forgive that. What you are in essence saying is, Jesus, thanks for the cross, but it wasn't enough. And that's just not true. Your your soul, your righteousness, if you have put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins you were bought at the price of Christ that is an expensive price tag you can always run to him there is always more grace to be had there is always more forgiveness to be had at the cross the fact that God is almighty should comfort us in our hardship and comfort us even in our rebellion to say I can trust and I can go to him find forgiveness and new life in Jesus it should inspire in us reverence. It should comfort us in our hardship. And it should encourage us to pray big. He is in control of all things, all the time, in all of existence. There is nothing too big for God, nothing too overwhelming, nothing that surprises or catches him off guard. He can do anything he wills, which means we can pray as big as and as seemingly outlandish as we can, knowing that God can handle it. So what do you want to see God do? And this is not like slot machine, like, I want a pony. That's not what we're talking about. What do you want to see God do in your life? What do you you want to see God do in the lives of your family and friends? What do you want to see God do on your block, at your job, in your school, in your city, in our country, in this world? What's something you want to see God do that can only happen if God makes it happen? Because when we enter into the space of the impossible, we give room for El Shaddai to be exactly who he is. So what is your big, scary, audacious, crazy prayer that seems too big to happen? Pray it. Pray it and keep praying it. Keep praying it until you get a clear answer from God one way or the other. What's that big, seemingly impossible thing? What's that big dream that you might have? Because if you got one of those, it's a good chance God gave it to you. There's a real good chance God's waiting for you to give him some space to be the El Shaddai that he is. What's that big, scary prayer that you might have? Because El Shaddai is waiting to show you exactly who he is, God Almighty. Let's pray.